recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. I've noticed that more and more people are listening to these programs on the Christagenia streams. This program is playing on all five streams if there's a problem with any one of them. And less people are listening on TalkShoe, which is um, what I hope. It, it's, I, I hope to maintain TalkShoe and, and keep that extra public outlet, but we certainly don't need TalkShoe in order to function. Today is Friday, April 5th, 2013. I want to thank you all for listening and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Should be first in all of our minds, in, in this hour especially. I want to talk a little bit about freedom of association. I, I did a program, a Euroforum program. It was quite popular. It has thousands of downloads on the Saxon Messenger site on freedom of association several, um, well, well, perhaps not even a year ago or, or thereabouts. Today I would like to talk about that same thing, but from a slightly different angle, because Christians, along with our freedom of association, we have a freedom not to associate. And, and this is something that's very poorly understood, and it's, it's something that I've been attempting to illustrate these past few weeks. In his Annals of Imperial Rome, the ancient Roman historian Tacitus claimed, among other things, that Christians had antisocial tendencies. I would assert that if Christians would only put their Christian profession into practice, they should indeed have antisocial tendencies. Not only should Christians bear in mind and practice their God-given right to free association with whom they please, but they rather have an obligation to practice their right not to associate with anyone who does not please their God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I had written to you in a letter not to associate with fornicators, not at all with the fornicators of this society, or with the covetous, or rapacious, or idolaters, seeing that you are therefore obliged to come out from the society. In the same manner, James wrote in his epistle at James chapter 4, verse 4, Adulterers, do you not know that love of the society is hatred for God? He therefore who would desire to be a friend of society establishes himself as an enemy of God. Christians must make a choice between Yahweh, their God, or the world. I have recently been criticized for choosing to separate myself from certain people who I believe have made themselves friends of the world. Some of my critics have insinuated that I have no right to tell them whom not to associate with. And that is true. I cannot control whom other people associate themselves with. However, I have every right not to associate with people based upon their associations. And it is this right which I am asserting. It's this right that all Christians should assert. If I do not like whom one is associating with, I have every right to disassociate myself from that person. If that weighs on one's heart, then one probably has a guilt problem 
and one should therefore reassess those associations. Paul warned at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful, those who had the faith, with the faithless, those who were outside the faith, and the promises to our father Abraham? And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people speaking exclusively to the children of Israel. On which account? Come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince. And do not be joined to the impure or the unclean. And I will admit you. And I will be to you for a father and you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the almighty prince, Joshua Christ. Therefore, if you choose to associate with aliens or fornicators or idolaters, I may choose not to associate with you. And if I do further associate with you, it is only to persuade you one way or another, directly or indirectly, not to associate with aliens or fornicators or idolaters. The time will come that if you do not accept if you do not accept such persuasion, we will have to part ways. Since all men are sinners, whether they are Israelites or not, the entire Adamic race, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I'm talking about men here, right? The entire Adamic race, as Paul equates the word man or anthropos in Greek to the word Adam in Hebrew. He's not talking outside of the scope of that race, of the Bible. Since all men are sinners, whether or not they are Israelites, yet since only Israel has a promise of cleansing, and only Israel was cleansed on the cross of Christ, then it naturally follows that only Israel is clean. And in this world, all others are unclean. It is clear in the passage of 2 Corinthians just cited that we are to separate ourselves from the unclean or the impure, which is anyone who is not Israel, whom we esteem to be the Celtic and Saxon related and related peoples of the worlds today. The white race in general, most of it. There is no other promise of cleansing in the Bible to anyone but the children of Israel. Therefore, John described the words of Christ in his gospel at John chapter 13, from verse 10. He who is bathed, and this is a, in, in the cultural context of wearing sandals and walking in the desert, in the cultural context of first century Judea, he who is bathed does not have need except to wash the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are all clean, but n and you are clean, talking to the group of the twelve, 
but not all. And John goes on to explain that. For he knew the man betraying him. For this reason he said, you are not all clean. Judas was not clean, and he never could be clean, because Judas was a Canaanite. He was a product of that same sin which could not be washed off, as it was described in Jeremiah chapter 2. For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Peter, as it is in Acts chapter 10, was warned not to consider common that which God had cleansed which, according to the prophets, must refer to the long-dispersed children of Israel. Paul said towards the end of his second epistle to the Thessalonians, at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14, And if anyone obeys not our words for this letter, make him known not to associate yourselves with him, that he may turn about, that that person may repent. And that's what you pray for when you have to disassociate yourself from a fellow Israelite, from a fellow Adamic soul. I won't necessarily say Christian. Christianity. Christian is a race, but we must accept Christ before we find his favor. Earlier in that same letter in 2, Corinthians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul said, and that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men, since the faith is not for all. Of course the faith is not for all. And that's what the Greek says. The faith is not for all because the faith is only for the children of Israel. Sadly, even most identity Christians do not understand that they have a basic right to freely associate with whomever they choose and to not associate with whomever they choose. Christians have a basic right and a basic religious obligation. They have an obligation to Yahweh their God not to associate with fornicators, race mixers, with sexual deviants, and with other sinners. And also not to associate with people from other religions. Christians cannot justly be compelled even to make simple business transactions with people of other religions if they would only stand for their faith. Exodus chapter 23 23, verses 32 and 33. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. Think about the Muslims. For if thou serve their gods, when you serve their people, you serve their gods. It's that simple. When you kiss the Muslim's ass who lives next door to you, you're kissing the ass of his God. You're kissing the ass of his idol. You're legitimizing not only his heresy, but the fact that he's probably of mixed race, since all Arabs are of mixed race. This is just one example. And you're legitimizing that. 
You're putting your stamp of approval on that every time you greet that person. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it surely shall be a snare unto thee. Those who would attempt to force Christians into associating with sinners or aliens or even people of other religions, those who promote such associations cannot possibly be true Christians themselves. Paul taught in Romans chapter 1 that not only those committing certain sins are worthy of punishment, even death, but also those who approve of those people who commit those sins are worthy of death, are worthy of that same punishment. If you approve of sinners, you are enabling them and making their sinful behavior legitimate. The same thing with idolaters, the same thing with people of other races or people that worship different gods. The word of Yahweh says in the 82nd Psalm, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, his children. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? In truth, none of us should ever accept the persons of the wicked, which includes all non-Israelites, because according to the word of God, only the sheep escape the lake of fire. Because I disassociate myself from certain people, some of my critics have complained that I am somehow censoring them. This claim is ridiculous. It is typical of the same claims which Jewish radicals have frequently made in order to usurp unsuspecting Christian societies. I don't fall for that bullshit. My adversaries who are mostly Jews and the enemies of Christ, or people with otherwise anti-Christian agendas, people who insist that we embrace non-white races, people who insist that we find room for Negroes and Mestizos in our doctrine, we sure as hell aren't going to find room for them in the kingdom of God. If we're false prophets, we might find room for them somewhere in our doctrine but Yahweh says, unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. He shall not see it. He won't see it from the outside. He won't see it from the inside. He won't see it from any side. My adversaries are not invited to set up soapboxes in my program chats and on my websites or in my forums. I'm not censoring them. These places belong to me. And for the most part, they are financed by those of our Christian brethren who appreciate my work. I am not censoring the man whom I exclude from my own abode. That man may go elsewhere and exercise his perceived freedom of speech. If one thinks that he may do better, that is fine. And he has every right to express his ideas, so long as he expresses them somewhere else. Anyone can create their own talk show programs, their own websites, their own forums. 
I cannot, and of course I would not, try to prevent anyone from doing that. If one's ideas or teachings are indeed good, one will have success. Yahweh God will render to each according to his works. 2 Timothy chapter 2, from verse 20. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some things for honor, yet others for dishonor. If a man would purge himself of the later, if a man purges himself of the vessels of wood and clay, he would be a vessel for honor. Having sanctified himself, come out from among them, touch not the unclean, serviceable to the master, having prepared himself for all good works. Christians must purge themselves of the vessels of wood and clay if they expect themselves to be of any use to their God or of any value to their fellows. Christians must cleanse themselves as, of, of dross as gold and silver are cleansed before vessels are made from them. And seek only those other vessels, those other gold and silver vessels which have done so, or which at least make an earnest and sincere attempt to do so, and to associate themselves with those alone. Associate yourselves with the ungodly, and when in pieces, in pieces you shall be broken. Christians have every obligation to disassociate themselves from those who accept the non-Adamic races from those who accept the people who are outside of our covenant. We should not accept those people, ever. We all live in mystery Babylon. Yes, we do. We all have to deal with them if we want to make our way in this world. We deal with them professionally. That's fine. Leave it at the office door when it's time to punch out. We have to shop at certain stores. We have to deal with them at the cash register. That's fine. You leave it right there at the register when you pay your bill. You don't bring them home. You don't associate with them in, in your social hours. You don't bring them into your groups. You don't bring them into your clubs. You don't bring them to your dinner table. You sure as hell don't bring them to meet your daughter. You leave them at the workplace. You leave them wherever you have to be. Wherever you have to be to get by in life, that's where you leave them, and that's where they stay. And that's fine. You sure as hell don't try to bring them along with your God into the kingdom of heaven, because they won't see it. If you want to prove yourself worthy to your God, you better accept his word. You better understand that. If you don't, and you continue to associate with Negroes and Mestizos and, and all the other vessels of wooden clay walking around our society, that's fine, but don't look at me funny when I'm going to disassociate myself from you. Blessed are you when men hate you, 
when they cast your name out as evil for the Son of Man's sake. I'm paraphrasing Luke chapter 6, verses, verse 22, I believe, 622. One of my favorite passages. I wonder why. With this we will commence with the prophecy of Amos. Part 10. In Amos chapters 1 and 2, while Yahweh pronounced judgments upon Judah and the other surrounding nations for their various transgressions, I'm sorry, while Yahweh pronounced judgments upon Israel because they oppressed the poor and the righteous, he also pronounced judgments upon Judah and the other surrounding nations for their various transgressions. Beginning with Amos chapter 3 and through to the end of the book, Yahweh pronounces a series of judgments upon Israel alone, which are actually repetitive pronouncements foretelling basically the same punishment, but giving differing reasons for that punishment in different ways. In Amos chapter 3, Yahweh announces to Israel that you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The reasons given in this chapter are that they know not to do right, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. This means that the riches they had gained for themselves were accumulated through unjust means, through robbery and violence, whether or not they realize that. through their unjust trade practices, their unjust mercantilism, their oppression of their brethren, their selling of their own brethren into slavery. In verse 12, a reference is made to the horns of the altar of Bethel, which was a principal seat of idolatry in Israel. In Amos chapter 4, another pronouncement of judgment is made upon Israel. For reason that they oppressed the poor and crushed the needy of their tribesmen, as Yahweh singles out those who live sumptuously. Again, references are made to Bethel and also to Gilgal in verse 4 of that chapter, which in turn illustrate the idolatry of Israel and the corruption of the prophets. In Amos chapter 5, another judgment is pronounced, this time in the form of a lamentation. Israel is warned that nine-tenths of the people would be taken away. Bethel and Gilgal are again mentioned. And by this it is clear that idolatry is the main cause of Israel's offense against God. The lamentation ends with the pronouncement of verse 27. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith Yahweh, whose name is the God of hosts. Amos chapter 6 is yet another pronouncement of judgment upon Israel. And the nation is warned that this judgment is imminent and unavoidable. Samaria, the capital city, is singled out. And the people are again chastised for their sumptuous living and forewarned of their captivity and the loss of all their city and of all their riches. The overall lesson is that, with their idolatry and their merchandising, they have neglected the poor of their brethren. Therefore, because their riches were acquired unjustly, and because they had oppressed rather than assisted their kinsmen, Yahweh would ensure that they lose all that they had. Kind of like a stock market bubble, right? On steroids. 
Beginning in Amos chapter 7, the prophet pronounces how Israel would be punished. And in doing so, he is given three visions. The first vision is of grasshoppers, who would eat the grass of the land. This seems to represent the produce of the people of Israel. The destruction of Israel is assured. The second vision is of a plumb line by which the people themselves would be divided. Those for whom captivity or death is destined are already assured of their fate, and Israel would be laid to waste. Before the third vision, the basket of summer fruit beginning at Amos chapter 8, Amos seems to have been interrupted by Amaziah, priest of the idol of Bethel, who tries to stop him from prophesying. Because of that, Amos pronounces that the wife of Amaziah would become a whore. His children would be slain, and he himself would die in a polluted land, a reference to what would be left of Israel. Then Amos once again pronounced that Israel would be taken into captivity. Here we are with Amos chapter 8. Thus have Yahweh God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said Yahweh unto me, the end is come upon my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. There is an apparent play on words here in Hebrew, where the word for summer fruit is kayits, Q-A-Y-I-T-S, would be the transliteration. Strong's number 7019. And the word for end is kets, a very similar word with similar roots. Strong's number 7093. The Hebrew word kets certainly seems to be cognate with our English word cut. We do not know the season in which Amos received this vision. However, in a hot climate, a basket of ripe summer fruit would not have long before it rots. Therefore, the judgment of Israel would be not far off. It was actually over 30 years from when Amos wrote, which was ostensibly towards the end of the reign of Jeroboam II, which ended about 753 B.C., until Samaria was besieged and taken by the Assyrians, circa 721 or 722 B.C. So we see what 30 years is to Yahweh our God. It's about the time it takes for a basket of summer fruit, of ripe summer fruit, to rot, right? A day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Verse 3. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith Yahweh God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. The punishment of the people is to be significant. The Septuagint has, and the ceilings of the temple shall howl in that day, rather than the songs. Saith Yahweh God. There shall be many a fallen one in every place. I will bring silence upon them seems to make more sense sometimes. Verse 4. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, the rich who oppress the poor. A theme in the epistle of James. Even to make the poor of the land to fail, 
saying, when will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn? And the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, unjust trade, unjust weights and measures, unjust monetary systems that constantly deflate the unit of currency, and falsifying balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yeah, and sell the refuse of the wheat. In this case, we actually had deflation rather than inflation, right? Making the ephah small and the shekel great. Aside from their idolatry, the charge of transgression in Israel was by the oppression of the poor and needy has been made throughout the prophecy of Amos. Here we see that the people against whom the charge is laid care more for their riches gained in commerce than they do for the state of their nation and especially for the needy of the land. They also care more for their commerce than they do for the feast days and the Sabbaths appointed by Yahweh their God. They see the Sabbaths as a time of missed opportunity for trade, as an inconvenience to their commerce. It sounds like ancient Israel had a Jew problem, just like we have a Jew problem today, just like our businesses uh, in the 1960s and 70s forsook the Christian Sabbath, and they leave their doors open for commerce every single day. And they oppressed the poor of the land. Especially in their corporate slavery. Because they refused to practice godly commerce. Verse 7. Yahweh is sworn by the excellency of Jacob. There surely I will never forget any of their works the judgment which Amos has pronounced upon Israel would not be repented of. This doesn't erase the message of hope that we shall see at the end of Amos. This only means that mercy would not be granted. The punishment which Yahweh decreed shall be executed. They will go into captivity beyond Damascus. It was not avoidable at this point. Verse 8, shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwells therein, and it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. The nation would be washed away as if by the force of a mighty river of water. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. And I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins, and baldness upon every head. And I will make it as the morning of an only sun, and the end thereof is a bitter day. The signs of darkness forebode the evil coming upon the land. The feasts were never celebrated in righteousness, so they would become a time of evil. The people who had rejoiced in their unseemly riches 
would mourn as though they had lost an only son. Verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of Yahweh, and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and the young men faint for thirst, and wander they did. From the extremities of Asia to the extremities of Europe. Amaziah, the idol priest of Amos chapter 7, was but one example of those who would seek to silence the men who were pronouncing the word of Yahweh God at this point in Israel's national history. They also, they also silenced Isaiah, according to um, certain apocryphal literature, by sawing him in two. They silenced Jeremiah by casting him into prison. There were several instances in the, in the writing of Jeremiah where the priests sought his life and certain noble men actually stood up and defended him. Here we have Amaziah, the priest, threatening Amos that the king seeks his life and telling him to flee to Judah in order to silence him. But Amaziah is but one example. In Amos chapter 2, at the first pronouncement of judgment upon Israel, we read in part in verse 11 and 12 and 13. And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. It is not even thus, O, children, o ye children of Israel, saith Yahweh, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophecy not. Behold, I am pressed under you, or oppressed by you, weighed down by you. As a cart is pressed, that is full of sheaves. In Amos chapter 5, again we see that the people also rejected righteous judgment, where it says in verse 10, They hate him that rebukes in the gate, and they abhor him that speaks uprightly. And this is a, this is a, a carbon copy of Western society today. It's a carbon copy of American and European society today. The trade practices, the politically correct, the demands for politically correct public speech. It's a carbon copy of the shape America and Europe are in right now. For this reason, or for, for this is one reason, they would be bereaved of their nation and their society. They would be bereaved of their nation and their society, and they would be, be left further bereft of the words of Yahweh their God. Therefore, they would have no guide and no compass. And it fully reflects the tribal history of the dispersed children of Israel on the plains of Eurasia. The same pronouncement of judgment is made in Hosea, but it's presented somewhat differently. We're in Hosea chapter 3, verse 4, Yahweh said, For the children of Israel shall, be, shall abide many days 
without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without teraphim, they would lose all of the symbols and, and, and the institutions that represented their culture. They would lose them all. They would be left bereft without the word of their God, without his guidance, without a compass, without a moral compass, without a national schematic. That's anarchy, right? Examining history, while some in the West were fortunate enough to have been familiar with Scripture, and, and that's true, the Venerable Bede actually describes the, um, the bishops up to his time as translating the Scriptures from Latin and Greek into the vernacular tongues. However, that wasn't true of all of our race at that time. Many of the dispersed of Israel would not hear the word of Yahweh again until the Reformation and the printing of Bibles on a large scale. That would mean that they were left, at least much of our race, were left bereft of the word of God for over 2,000 years from the time of the dispersions of true Israel to the time of the Reformation when true Israel received the word of God in a language they could understand once again with the printing of Bibles. The word of God would only return to the people in Christ because of the spread of Christianity. Therefore, the Apostle John says in the opening lines of his gospel in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with Yahweh, and the word was Yahweh. He was in the beginning with Yahweh. The word of God was uttered in the temple of Yahweh by God and through his prophets. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Yahshua Christ is God. And we beheld his splendor. Splendor is the most loved by the Father, full of favor and truth. So the word of God only returned to the children of Israel in Christ on account of Yahshua Christ. Verse 14. They did swear by the sin of Samaria and say, By God, O Dan liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth. Even they shall fall and never rise up again. Dan represents the northernmost. Beersheba represents the southernmost of the cities of Israel proper in Palestine. Where the scriptures speak of better times, one reads at 1 Kings 4.25, for instance, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now the Septuagint has this verse, Thy God, O Beersheba, rather than the manner of Beersheba. However, in this instance, we do have another witness in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they agree with the Masoretic text here. In any event, at this time, the way of Beersheba was apparently just as evil as that of Dan, of Samaria, of Bethel, of Gilgal, and the rest of Israel which followed in the way of idolatry. 
Dan was also one of the seeds of the idolatry of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Jeroboam I, who had instituted the worship of the golden calves and had set one of the two golden calves in Bethel and the other in Dan. From 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, thy gods, O Israel, referring to the golden calves, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. Much later in the days of Jehu, we read in 2 Kings chapter 10, Jehu being the grandfather of Jeroboam II, the king during the time of Amos, and 2 Kings chapter 10 verse 29 says, Howbeit from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, Jeroboam I, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not from after them, to wit, the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. And that stayed the state religion of the children of Israel all the way to the time of the deportations. And we heard the words of Amaziah in Amos chapter 7 explaining that the temple of the golden calf in Bethel was basically the chapel of the king and the place where he kept his court. Amos chapter 9, verse 1. I saw Yahweh standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the posts may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that flees of them shall not flee away, and he that escapes of them shall not be delivered. Now we learned in Amos chapter seven that Amos was in was not Amos was not in Judah. This is not the temple in Jerusalem. Rather, Amos was in Bethel, and this is a reference to the temple housing that idol of the golden calf which had represented the state religion of Israel since the days of Jeroboam I. And we learned from Amos chapter 7, and I just repeated myself, that this is where the chapel and the court of the kings were held. And that had been going on for nearly 200 years, that idolatry. It's about 180 years between the time of Jeroboam I and the time of Jeroboam II. from the death of Solomon to the time in which Amos wrote. Here we see in Amos chapter 9, verse 1, that Yahweh is going to slay all of the people who were worshiping the golden calf in, in the temple of Bethel. All of the people that are following the state religion. We should bear that in mind today when we go to Judeo-Christian churches. We should bear that in mind today when we join ourselves to Negroes and Mestizos in our social hours. (laughs) 
in the temples of commerce that we call saloons or clubs or cafes. And they are just like the ancient temples. The ancient pagan temples served as places to dine and to make merry and to find consorts. They were just like the bars and clubs of today. They had a more religious connotation. There you were worshipping the idols of Baal. Today you're worshipping the idols of Rosenberg and Schmielstein and all of the other Jews that operate our commerce, Mystery Babylon. It's no different. Amos 9, verse 2. Though they dig into hell, then shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent. This is a literal sea monster. And he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword. And it shall slay them, and I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. There is no escaping the judgment of Yahweh. And he will punish even those taken captive if it is their destiny to be punished in that manner, which had already been determined by the plumb line in the vision of Amos chapter 7. This is something we should bear in mind in this present time. When once again, we who examine the word of God anticipate his judgment upon a nation which is obviously deserving such judgment for its evils. Those who would hide in the holes of the rocks are those who are guilty of transgressing against God and who are unrepentant. The prophet Isaiah, pronouncing the same judgment which was about to come on the children of Israel, illustrates this same thing in the second chapter of his much longer prophecy, which we also see, where we also see Yahweh chastise Israel for their unseemly riches and their many idolatries. The same things that Amos chastises Israel for here. However, Isaiah also chastises Israel for their fornication, something that Amos really doesn't address. Hosea addressed it, and Isaiah addressed it. From Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people in the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east, and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves, in the children of strangers. Their land also is full of silver and gold. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. Neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself before those idols. Therefore forgive them not. Enter into the rock, and hide thee in the dust, 
for fear of Yahweh and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and Yahweh alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of Yahweh of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and everyone that is lifted up. And he shall be brought low, and upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, the merchandisers, and upon all pleasant pictures. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low. And Yahweh alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols he shall utterly abolish. And they shall go, the men guilty of these things, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of Yahweh. And for idols of silver, and his idols of gold, which they made each one for themselves to worship, and to the moles and to the bats. I'm sorry, they shall throw them to the moles and to the bats. To go into the clefts of the rocks, and into the tops of the ragged rocks, for fear of Yahweh, and for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the, terribly the earth. Cease ye from man, whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? The guilty hide from the judgment of God. They attempt to hide. Amos tells us that the hiding won't do them any good. You can't escape God. You can't escape his judgment. However, of the judgment to come, which many of us are even assured has already begun, Christians should have no fear. If you're not guilty of idolatry, if you separate yourselves from the world, you should have no fear. From the words of Christ, pronouncing his return in Luke chapter 21. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. And I'm sure at that time there will be plenty of men hiding in the holes of the rocks. But we have the words of Christ. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. While all men sin, the children of God who seek his word and rejoice at his coming have nothing to fear and nothing to hide themselves from on the day of his judgment. Of course, the children of Israel should know that they can't escape that judgment unless they're joined to the world and they're partying with the beast. We should get out of Babylon, but we need not go and hide ourselves in the rocks. Amos 9, verse 5. And Yahweh, God of hosts, is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt, and all that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up wholly like a flood, 
and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. It is he that builds his stories in the heaven and has founded his troop in the earth. He that calls to the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, Yahweh is his name. This is poetic allegory for the destruction which Yahweh would bring upon the kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. A lot of people want to take a lot of this allegory literally when it applies to the future, when they read the book of Revelation, for instance. It can't be taken literally. We could see in the words of the ancient prophets that it was poetic allegory, and that's how it should be interpreted. God doesn't realize, a giant hand doesn't come down from heaven and melt the land, right? Amos 9.5. It's childish to extrapolate those same, those same literal visions into our future. Amos 9, verse 7. Are you not as the children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith Yahweh? Why would he say that? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kir? We will take a moment to discuss these places. The Septuagint reading of the last clause of Amos 9-7 is, Did I not bring up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Cappadocia, and the Syrians out of the deep? So I guess the Syrians are... Or, or see people. No, I'm kidding. It can be fully demonstrated that the Septuagint translators often botched ancient place names. Trying to make sense out of things that they did not fully understand. They didn't have the, the gift of the science of archaeology and things like that. They didn't dig ancient relics out of the ground and study them. They just didn't do those things. That's very evident in all of the Greek historical books and the Roman classics also. The Amos of the Dead Sea Scrolls is wanting the portion of the verse in question here. Note something from the scripture. The scriptures do not speak evil of the Philistines themselves or the Syrians. And in fact, the Philistines, I mean that they're judged for their evil deeds, but they're not evil people. Even though they were nevertheless often opposed to Israel, they were not classed in the same group as the Canaanite tribes, which were accursed. The Canaanite tribes are a whole different story from the, Philip, from the Philistines and the Syrians, who were Adamic people. The Ethiopians are properly Cushites. The children of Cush dwelt in Mesopotamia, where Nimrod founded the first Adamic empire, as described in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. Nimrod was a descendant of Cush, a descendant of Ham. That would be the first Babylonian empire to archaeologists and historians. In the days of Moses, this empire, the empire of Cush, stretched all the way to the border of Egypt. And Moses, who procured a wife of the Midianites in Arabia, not below Egypt, not to the south of Egypt in what we call Ethiopia today. Moses got his wife. It's very clear throughout Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Moses' wife came from the children of Midian in Arabia. But because it, 
that time that was part of the empire of Kush, the empire established by Nimrod many, many centuries before. It was called the land of Kush. The Greek name for Kush was Ethiopia. A word from Greek which ostensibly means sunburnt face. This is explained in detail in my paper, The Race of Genesis 10, available at Christagenia. As there were two lands of Cush in early Hebrew records, there were two places called Ethiopia in early Greek records, and they correspond to the Hebrew. Herodotus and other early Greek writers mentioned the Ethiopia of the East. Homer recalls the hero Memnon. He was named Memnon the Ethiopian. He was credited in Greek mythology as having built Susa. Susa was the city which was later, all throughout Persian history, the primary capital city of Persia. It was built by Memnon the Ethiopian in the Greek myths. Memnon the Ethiopian joined the Trojan side as an ally in the famous Trojan War. You can be assured he wasn't a Negro. The Greeks described the Persians as being absolutely white. Greek art depicts the Persians as being absolutely white. The Ethiopians to the south of Egypt... Their land was ostensibly a colony of that in Mesopotamia, and it was founded by way of the sea, by the crossing of the Persian Gulf to the Horn of Africa. The early Egyptians also professors having come to Egypt from that same direction. And according to scripture, they had descended from Mitzrayim, the son of Ham and the brother of Cush. It can be demonstrated that all of these people were originally white. However, around the very same time of the prophet Amos, Ethiopia had been overrun with Nubians, and Egypt would shortly follow thereafter. Egypt, just after the time of Amos, Egypt was ruled by Nubians for 75 years. Egypt and Ethiopia having been overrun with Nubians, were surrendered to the enemies of Yahweh. How do we know they were surrendered to the enemies of Yahweh? Because in Isaiah chapter 43, addressing the children of Israel, Yahweh says, For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for you. Those nations, having been overrun with Nubians, Yahweh surrendered them to his enemies. And that's why they're no longer white nations. Think about that when you think about the nature of the Negro. Think about Isaiah 43.3 and what's going on there when you think about the nature of the Negro. And tell me how you could justify those people. Who did Yahweh give those nations up to for the sake of the children of Israel? Scripture tells us that the Philistines were an offshoot of the early Egyptians. 
Although by the time of the Pharaoh Merneptah in the 13th century BC, they were counted among the sea peoples who were the enemies of Egypt. Of course, this is long after the Hebrew conquest of Palestine, and many of the so-called sea peoples were those of the northern tribes of Israel, whom the scripture tells us had taken to the sea, notably Dan and Asher, Judges chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 10, the descendants of Mitzrayim are not listed in the singular, but they're listed in the plural as peoples, all found to be occupying particular areas in and around Egypt. And I quote, And Mitzrayim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lahabim, and Naphtalim, I'm sorry, Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, out of whom came Philistine, and Kaphtorim. The Septuagint also interpreted the listing of the descendants of Mitzraim in this manner. The King James translators would have done better to recognize that, and Mitzraim begot the Ludim and the Anamim and the Lahabim and the Naphtuhim and the Pathrusim and the Kathahim, Kasluhim, out of whom came the Philistines, the Philistine, and the Kaphtorim would be the inhabitants of the land of Kaphtor. We can only guess where in Egypt Kaphtor would be. The Scepters and translators have Cappadocia. They tried to interpret the land of Kaphtor. They tried to interpret where that could be. They found a place that was slightly phonetically similar, and they labeled it Cappadocia. That doesn't mean it's right. The Septuagint translators made a lot of mistakes with place names. I love the Septuagint, but sometimes we need the Masoretic text to sort things out and figure out what they were thinking and what they were looking at when they translated it, because they translated it in a Hellenistic Greek context, without much of a knowledge of ancient history that we have today from archaeology. That's just the way it is. The Amos apparently said here that the Syrians had come from Kir is quite interesting. Everywhere that the term Syria appears in Scripture, the Hebrew word is Aram. And the word Syrians comes from the Hebrew plural of the word Aram. Aram was a brother of Arphaxad. Arphaxad was the ancestor of the Hebrews. And his offspring, the offspring of Aram, were apparently quite close to the ancient Hebrews. In the historical books of the Bible, <coughs> excuse me, in the historical books of the Bible, Kir is not mentioned at all until 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 9, which follows the time of Amos' ministry. It's actually, that chapter is during, that, that verse is during the reign of Pekah, the king of Israel, which is, which is much later than Amos, several decades. And in 2 Kings 16, 9, it says, And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Kir, and slew Rezin. Rezin was their king. This was in fulfillment of Amos' own prophecy at Amos 1.5, where it says that the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Kir. It is not clear just where this ancient Kir was located. 
However, in reference to the statement concerning the origin of the Syrians here in Amos 9-7, the following remarks were made in part one of this presentation of Amos, where I said, the ancient district of Padanaram, known from Genesis chapters 25 through 46, it's often mentioned there, is a name which means the plain of Aram. And Aram is a name for that tribe which is akin to the Hebrews, Genesis 10.22. But the Hebrew name for Aram is usually translated as Syrian in the King James Version, and in reference to their land, it is translated as Syria. If the original land of Aram was in northern Mesopotamia, where Padanaram, the plain of Aram, is located, then Kir must be there. And the Syrians of Damascus must have been deported back to that region from whence their ancestors had come, Kir. So that's where they were from, in Padanaram, and that's where the Assyrians deported them to later. Amos 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of Yahweh God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith Yahweh. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Corn in modern English is simply grain, and not the maize, which we have more familiar, familiarly become acquainted with in North America. Corn is, a, is an old English word for grain. Grain is sifted through a sieve in order to refine it. Yahweh says here, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Among all the nations they were deported to. The children of Israel were deported by the Assyrians to the cities of the Medes. Some of them went to Persia. Some of them went into Anatolia. Some of them were settled in northern Assyria. All of the known nations at that time, Yahweh sifted the house of Israel among, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Grain is sifted in a sieve in order to refine it. In the prophecy of Hosea, who ministered around this same time, he wrote at the same time that Amos wrote, he, he ministered his prophecy. We read in Hosea 5-7 in reference to the children of Israel, They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. Likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 2, Yahweh said of Israel, and he was talking of Judah as well, and it was aimed at Judah, but he was speaking of Israel too. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed, how then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Likewise again in Isaiah chapter 17, Yahweh said of Israel, Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shalt set it with strange slips. The children of Israel, going off into idolatry, also began race mixing. The deportations of Israel occurred so that Yahweh could sift Israel, thereby refining them and removing the impurities. For no man puts into the sieve chaff along with the grain, 
the grain must first be winnowed. In ancient times, grain was winnowed with a shovel and a fan to remove the chaff before the grain could be refined in the sieve. From Isaiah chapter 41, Yahweh speaking to the dispersions of the children of Israel. Isaiah looking to the isles of the west. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and sayest unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yeah, I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them, and thou shalt not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing, and as a thing of naught. Think about that when you think about the Persians and Assyrians and Babylonians today. For I, Yahweh thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And here's the part I'm getting to. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shalt make the hills of chaff as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in the Lord, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, Yahweh, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Israel would be threshed. They would be threshed beating their enemies and threshing their enemies. Yahweh put Israel among those nations to sift them like through a seed like grain is put through a seed. Therefore John the Baptist said of Christ, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We have to understand that it's a matter of prophecy that Israel would be refined. They would be purified among the nations that they were deported to before they left to seek their God. Before they went to a place of their own from which they would move no more. Now, of course, we're being overrun with aliens again. That's a matter of a different set of prophecies. Verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. It's one thing to be a sinner. 
It's quite another to be a sinner and to scoff at the possibility that Yahweh God judges his people. Today, we once again have a situation where we have several generations of sinful people who deny even the existence of God and reject the notion that judgment may come upon them for their wicked doings. We also have basically the same situation with the wealthy and poor whites and with the disdain of the Sabbath day by the wealthy and by most people, which is evident here in the pages of Amos concerning Israel. We're a carbon copy of ancient Israel. Just add technology. Which probably makes us even worse. Verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof. And I will raise up his ruins. And I will build it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the heathen, all of the nations which are called by my name. The heathen were never called by the name of Yahweh. This is a serious problem in the King James translation. There's two problems in Amos 9.12 in the King James translation. One is the phrase remnant of Edom, and the other is the phrase and all of the heathen. The word is the same word is often translated nations, and it should have been here. Because the heathen were not called by the name of Yahweh. The King James translators, just obviously, and it's obvious in many places, did not understand the promises to Abraham. And all of the nations which are called by my name say it's Yahweh that does this. Of course, the remnant of Edom was possessed by Christian kings for many centuries, as the Jews were chattel property in Europe in the Middle Ages. But they are ultimately to be destroyed, as so many other prophecies promise in a different context. While the Dead Sea Scrolls apparently agree with the Masoretic text here, the only difference is in vowel points. The Septuagint reading is far more plausible, and it is very easy for copyists and translators to confuse the Hebrew words for Adam and Edom, since the words are virtually identical except for vowel points you would have to read the context to understand whether the word refers to Adam, the Adamic man, or Edom, the brother of Jacob, and his descendants. Here the subdivision has that the remnant of man and all the nations upon whom my name is called may earnestly seek me, saith Yahweh who does all these things. And this is certainly the proper reading. In Acts chapter 15, there is a dispute as to whether those non-Judeans at Antioch who were being converted to Christianity would be circumcised and follow the other laws of Moses. There, in that chapter, the Apostle James is recorded as having responded to this argument and having quoted this very passage of Amos in his response. A close examination of the context reveals that James is talking about non-Judeans who were of the dispersed of Israel, the nations upon whom my name is called, as the King James Version has it, can only be those of the dispersed of Israel, 
The proof of this is found elsewhere in Scripture, such as in Isaiah 43.7, where Yahweh addressed the children of Israel and says, Even everyone that is called by, name, by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. And then in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 4, where Yahweh says, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have called thee by thy name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not, hast not known me. But no people but Israel, no people but Israel have Yahweh's name upon them. That is a matter of Yahweh's word. No other people can claim to have that name upon them if Yahweh states explicitly that he put his name upon the children of Israel in the Old Testament, that he surnamed them in the Old Testament, in his word. Nobody else can claim, oh, I have my name upon him. No, you don't, not if you're not one of the children of Israel. You could say it, but that doesn't make it true. So we see in Acts chapter 15, these words from the Apostle James, from verse 13. And after their silence, James responded, saying, Men, brethren, you listen to me. Simeon, meaning Simon Peter, has declared just how at the first Yahweh considered to take from among the nations a people in his name. Israel would be sifted among the nations to which they were deported. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. These are the words of James. Just as it is written, and here he's quoting Amos. After these things I shall return, and I shall rebuild the tent of David which has fallen, and I shall rebuild its ruins, and I shall set it up again, that those remaining of men seek Yahweh, Let's use this passage in James to interpret this passage of Amos as to whether that word should be the remnant of Adam or the remnant of Edom. Okay? James understood it to be the remnant of Adam, that those remaining of men, seek Yahweh, and all the nations whom have my name labeled upon them, and from, as a matter of prophecy, that can only be the children of Israel, says Yahweh, doing these things known from of old, and that's the end of my quote from Acts, that these things are known from of old indicates that they are known from the prophets, the words of James the Apostle whose oracles prove that these things are intended only for the children of Israel, that Yahweh intended to take out of the dispersed nations of Israel a people in his name. None of these things can ever be made to apply to any other people. They can never be made to apply to any other people, and especially any non-Adamic people. To do so is a fraud against the word of God to the utmost degree. And the Apostle James, by this time in Acts chapter 15, evidently knew it the way he quoted from Amos. He knew that the 12 tribes were scattered abroad 
as he wrote in his own epistle. He knew where they were. He knew who they were. His epistle appealed to them. Of course, the 12 tribes scattered abroad had traveled far and wide by James's time. And today, they're primarily known as the Celtic and Germanic people. James knew that it was to those people that the word of God came. And that the gospel of Christ was to go, Acts chapter 15. Amos 9.13 Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And this begins a promise that Israel shall once again live bountifully, a sign of hope in their captivity. Verse 14 And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall be no more pulled up out of their land, which I have given to them, saith Yahweh thy God. As all of the Old Testament prophecies relate, all of the hope in Christ is a hope which is exclusively for the children of Israel. These passages are yet to be fulfilled, and we await and anticipate their fulfillment today. Praise Yahweh. This concludes our presentation of the book of Amos. I shall return next week. And unless a brief topic is interjected in the interim, I can't make any promises, we shall soon commence with an exposition of Luke Part 2, which is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is actually written as a sequel to Luke's Gospel. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren with Against the Paul Bashers, Part 16. Good night.